นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสมิเราต้องมีความรู้สึกว่าเราเป็นคนที่มีความรู้สึกที่ดีที่สุดเราต้องมีความรู้สึกที่ดีที่สุดเราต้องมีความรู้สึกที่ดีที่สุดเราต้องม
the Buddha also <laughs> encouraged a great deal of kindness and compassion for all beings. And he didn't discriminate between this one and any other beings. Uh, yeah, the encouragement on cultivation of loving kindness from the Buddha's perspective is equal, this being other beings equally. I think it's a really important point, just to get a little distracted here, already very quick in the talk. Um, but there is that, I think this is a really, really worth making, that the, uh, the point that was illustrated by the Buddha's questioning of, of um, some disciples and, and saying, imagine you were in a forest and there was you and your friend and somebody you were indifferent to and your enemy, the four of you, were set upon by some brigands, if I remember the story correctly. And you were given the choice, the decision. The brigands said you had to decide who was going to be sacrificed. Can you imagine being there, dark and deep, damp, Indian forest, steaming, full of critters? Can you imagine it? And these nasty brigands with big brass earrings and great big machetes, like the ones that came on Ajahn Suchito and Nick Scott that time. Yeah. And you've got to decide who of the four is going to go. You, your best friend, somebody you don't really know if you're neutral about, and your worst enemy. Where does your mind go? Which direction does your mind go in? Well, the Buddha said... If your mind goes in any direction regarding those four, you haven't understood my teaching. Now, I think that's, that's a really important point. If your mind inclines in any direction, any preference for any one of those four to be sacrificed, you haven't understood the teaching on loving kindness. So with regards to pain, um, this being all beings need to be treated with great kindness and compassion and from a heart of loving-kindness, then yes, we may well choose to endure pain, but not out of brute force. The other um, point I wanted to elaborate on that Tanabinando referred to last night was um, the teaching instruction given by some of the great masters in Thailand where in talking about their own efforts of endurance, they sometimes sound like, you know, the body... It can just be dismissed and it doesn't really matter if you ruin your health in the pursuit of enlightenment. Uh, it could well sound like that. Um, however, I have, um, I, you know, Ajahn Chah was reported as saying that in his early 60s when his health started to fall apart that he regretted he hadn't paid closer attention to his health. He said, it's reported as saying that it's a great pity that here I am at the stage where I can just start being useful and my body's falling apart on me. And no blame in that, and I'm sure he wasn't caught up in, in self-recrimination and you know, feeling guilty about it or anything, but I think from the perspective of wisdom, he was pointing out, you know, it's a question of balance. That, you know, those great masters in their dramatic and noble efforts may well have moved through a period where it felt like the body didn't matter, tossed it aside even if they died in the process. And we've referred several times to the Buddha's aditana or determination under the Bodhi tree. 
And may my blood dry up, may my bones break in pursuit of it. liberation, as a, certainly as a metaphor for the determination that's necessary, that's very fitting. But given our willfulness and our sometimes imbalanced state of mind, let's be careful we don't flip into the masochistic mode of practice, which the Buddha pointed out in his very first discourse, Atagila Matana Yogo, the, the, uh, the, the imbalanced position of, of self-mortification. Kama Sukhani Kani Yogo, getting off on indulgence and pleasure, and then flipping into Atagila Matana Yogo, getting off on indulgence and pain, thinking that somehow that's going to you know, do it. Indulgence and pleasure didn't get us there, so you know, the mind tends to go on the other way and say, well, indulgence in pain. And so you know the stories of the Buddha's great renunciation and dramatic austerities and the peculiar and sometimes strange austerities that are still practiced in India and even in religious traditions of our own culture with people putting up with um, you know, extreme physical pain in pursuit of, hopefully, in pursuit of liberation. The Buddha said, this is a, this is a mistake and gave the teaching on the middle way. And the middle way being the point of perfect balance. From a perspective of perfect balance, we can maybe decide, yes, austerity is called for, but not from a a willful place of disgust or hatred or lack of loving kindness do we push ourselves uh, through pain. Having said that, Ajahn Chah also pointed out, and I think this is what I really wanted to, to say, that uh, he said in, in our lives, and he was talking to, uh, to monks at the time, but you know, I take it that we're all committed to practice here, and I, so I think it's, it's relevant. He was saying in our lives we, we'll, we'll sacrifice anything for the convenience and comfort of our bodies. You know, because we're very much identified in our bodies. If there's an obvious aspect of me, it's this. You know, sometimes my thoughts and feelings and so on, I think, oh, well, I don't know where they're coming from. You know, that thought I picked up from, you know, Tanpunya was thinking something, so it just went into my head, or, you know, he's in a grumpy mood, so I feel bad, or something. You know, I, I sometimes feel like the thoughts and feelings I have are coming from somewhere outside, but, but I never feel like this is somebody else's body. This is always me. I look in the mirror, and it's definitely me. I never think, oh, there's, there's Punya. I'm looking. <laughs> I've never had the thought like that. <laughs> He'll be pleased to hear. <laughs> this is a really obvious manifestation of me. And so, actually, so what Ajahn Chah was saying is, we'll sacrifice anything for the comfort and well-being of our bodies, and we have to be willing to sacrifice our bodies for Dhamma. So, it's the willingness that's being pointed to. It's not the case that we, we have to make ourselves sick or, or, uh, or torture ourselves. However, um, if Ajahn Chah is to be believed, and I suggest he probably is, and I suggest he definitely is, uh, there needs, we need to reach a point where, where we feel a willingness. It feels like even we're going to even lose our, our health. It feels like that, and we're, we're willing to hold that fear with kindness, with patience, with mindfulness. We're willing. Now, that's very different. Remember, we've been talking about the difference between willfulness and willingness. We're willing to even feel a fear of losing our health. 
Mm. Again, as Tanabinando pointed out last night, you feel pain, you don't immediately move on it and be motivated by, by disagreeable sensation into doing something. But having received it, then willingly feeling it, allowing it to be there, then maybe we choose to move or not move. So I would like to add that, contribute that to your contemplations on, on sitting, working with pain, that uh, we will sacrifice anything for the convenience and comfort of our body. Um, you know, we need to also be willing to sacrifice our body for the sake of freedom from suffering. Now I hope you don't you know, hear me wrongly on that, but I think there is a subtle and important point. Okay, so these questions this evening. The first one says, Wisdom, compassion, truth and purity are tangible outcomes from a particular quality of endeavour. They benefit the individual and form a better sense of community. Is this not already the beginning of enlightenment? Or must we wait for another form of existence for that state to be experienced? As I read this question, it's, it's really to do with how we use the word enlightenment as much as anything else. And we do hear this word around a lot these days. And um, So how do we use it? The classic Theravadan Buddhist usage of the word of enlightenment is a translation of the word Nibbāna, or as is used in the Sanskrit tradition, Nirvāna. And what it refers to is the, the final stage of purification of the heart, the final stage of liberation of consciousness from all the obstructions, all the fetters. And the final stage is being the removal of all traces of conceit and ignorance. And at that point, the being is absolutely unconditionally free. And the Buddha said, there's nothing you can, talk, nothing you can say about such a being's mind because there is nothing solid or permanent there. Uh, the heart has been completely liberated and there is no regression into any states of mind that are going to give rise to any form of mental suffering. The body may still suffer, as did the Buddha's body, even after his perfect enlightenment. There are stories of the Buddha sitting up on Vulture's Peak, sunning his back in the morning sun because of the pain of arthritis and or when he had the headache you know, and the various sufferings he had in his body. and The body suffered, but the, the heart and mind of the Buddha remained unshakable. At the loss of his, his closest disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana, he, he talked about the great sense of loss and, and, and that perception of loss. But also he commented, isn't it wonderful, isn't it marvellous, that the heart of the Tathagata is still free from grief. There was no grief, no sorrow, no lamentation, no despair. There was the perception of loss, but there wasn't the experience of mental pain and suffering. So that's the classic definition of enlightenment in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. But of course we do hear the word used in all sorts of ways. I mean, we get letters from people saying, thank you for the stay, it was the most enlightening time. Now of course we don't understand that they've liberated themselves from all traces of conceit and ignorance. Um, or people might say, oh, that was a very enlightening talk. It doesn't mean to say they've been liberated on the spot. Also, we hear 
that um, in other Buddhist and Hindu traditions we t- hear talk about people being enlightened and yet their behavior is not um, not what one would hope or expect of, of a thoroughly liberated, enlightened person in the traditional understanding, in the Theravadan traditional understanding. It is the case uh, in the Mah- some of the Mahayana traditions that enlightenment is used to refer to the um, experience of entering the way. In classic Theravadan teaching, there is a point in, in purification of the heart where referred to as stream entry or sotapanna, where all doubt falls away. From that point onwards, there is no doubt whatsoever in that being's mind about what needs to be done for liberation. It may still take them a good few lifetimes before they finish their work, but there's absolutely no doubt and no falling back from that perspective. It's not as if they'll fall back in some future life to a doubtful state again. From the point of insight into the path, as it's referred to, or stream entry, um, there's no falling back. And I understand that in some Mahayana traditions, this is referred to as the point of enlightenment, and a person from that point onwards can still can be referred to as an enlightened person. However, from a Theravadan perspective, they've still got lots of work to do on greed and anger and ignorance and conceit. However, there's an unshakable conviction of the path of practice. So there are different usages of this word enlightenment. You may wonder why you don't hear more talk from monks and nuns about uh, who's enlightened, who's not enlightened, again, at least in the Theravadan tradition. Uh, Sometimes in other traditions you do hear people even talking about themselves as being enlightened. Uh, Well, for those of you who are not so familiar with our training, just to point out that that uh, one of the rules in the monk's discipline is that uh, you're not allowed to talk about any uh, attainments that you have outside of the monastic community. Uh, it's the case that way back in the time of the Buddha, monks were talking about their stages of enlightenment and purification and, and people were getting very impressed and, and dazzled by these things, including psychic powers as well, not just stages of enlightenment. And so the lay communities were, were just getting dazzled by and, by and comparing people's enlightenment and so on. Buddha said, this is not the reason to be giving offerings to monks. You, you, you are nuns. You should make offerings to monks and nuns because of their commitment to the path, commitment to practice, and not just speculating about who and who isn't, at what stage of practice and has what psychic powers and so on and so forth. It's a little bit more elaborate than that, but basically there is a rule that says that monks are not allowed to talk about their uh, attainments outside of the monastic community. It's a very private affair. And, and another reason why also you don't hear much talk about it is because uh, one of the, the, the major rules that, that monks have is um, that if you claim to have stages of enlightenment or stages of insight or psychic powers that in fact you don't have, then uh, you're finished. You're no longer a monk and you can never be a monk again in this life. It's referred to as one of the, the four parajika offenses. And so if you've got that daunting possibility hanging over you, the idea that you might you know, get caught up in inflated 
way of presenting yourself and talking about your practice and, and actually basically end your life as a monk by claiming that you have some state that you don't have, uh, if you have such a, a thing hanging over you, it's, it's very daunting. And so for most people, most monks and nuns, they, they shy away from the whole area um, of talking about their own personal attainments. But this is a totally valid question, and um, and for the sake of clarification, uh, we say, or must we wait for another form of existence for that state to be experienced? The whole thrust of the Buddha's teaching is that the Dhamma is to be experienced here and now. Yeah. Probably, <laughs> it's fair enough to say that most of us are going to have to wait for another experience before <laughs> another lifetime before we experience perfect eradication of any taint of conceit or ignorance. Uh, there may be some superior beings present, I'm not sure, who who get there in this lifetime, but for the rest of us, it probably will have to wait to another lifetime. But in terms of beginning to realize the benefits of insight into Dhamma, the whole thrust of the Buddha's teaching is that it's it's um, what he called, as we do in the chanting, it's called Sanditi Ko, you know, which we, in the chanting about the Dhamma, Sanditi Ko, Akali Ko, Ehi Pasi Ko. Now, Sanditi Ko actually means... Uh, Ditti means to be viewed or seen here and now. Sanditiko means to be seen here and now. This is the nature of Dhamma. If we see Dhamma, it's seen now. And I, my understanding, my scant understanding of Pali is that this word also has the connotation of it's, it's verifiable here and now. This is, we're not talking about speculative you know, ideas about reality, but it's it's that actual seeing where you actually know something. You know, like just the same as, you know, when you actually get burnt by touching something hot, your entire relationship with that which burns is transformed. Your entire relationship with fire is transformed once you've been burned. You don't have to kid yourself, you don't have to persuade yourself Again, you know, you, your entire relationship with with fire is transformed uh, once you've been burnt. So, likewise, once there is insight, once there is a seeing penetrating through through the actuality of conditions to dhamma, there is a transformation. It's not a matter of having to persuade yourself that you know that what you saw was true. That if it's dhamma and a seeing dhamma, then it's, it's verified for the individual here and now. So, and that's really important. Uh, the Buddha was teaching in the context of uh, India, there were all sorts of religious beliefs around, and much as there is for us now, all sorts of views, and a lot of them were speculative, and uh, talked about, you know, if you do this, that, and the other, then in the future life everything's going to be okay. It's my understanding that the Buddha was cutting right through that, and saying, don't Spend your energy, you know, just worrying about the future lives. Establish yourself in an awareness here and now with an accuracy of seeing, with an accuracy of view. The first factor of the Eightfold Path, right view. Work with our view until we're seeing accurately into the nature, the transient nature of things, seeing through the way things appear to be here and now for ourselves and realizing for ourselves the benefit of the seeing. And the realization happens immediately. So no, it's not the case that um, 
from the perspective of the Buddhist teachings that we have to be waiting for some other state uh, to realize the benefit. Moving on to the next question. You've advised agility of the mind in practice. Would you also advise the agility and this agility approach in meditation? This week I've experienced quite a range of meditations when quietly observing eludes one. Is it okay to be creative? When quietly observing eludes one, is it okay to be creative? For example, one morning noticing a sensation in the spine, I followed it with the breath from the base to the top of the head. This worked well. Also, I found metta meditation good for the longer focus it provides, as well as opening the heart. So the uh, idea of being creative in practice um, and agility, uh, yes, absolutely, that's, that is what I've been encouraging. And, and practice for me is, is, is formal practice and in the, in the daily life practice. So a creative involvement with our practice, I would say, is essential. Uh, it's one of our um, great blessings as Westerners, our innovativeness. Yeah. Whereas the um, Asian tradition that, that this teaching is, has been contained in for the last 2,500 years has and still does really excel in respect for tradition and adherence to tradition. Uh, that's got great advantages, but given the rate of change in the world, sometimes that adherence and respect for tradition can also be an obstruction. And I think it's, doesn't, it's not doing Buddhism any harm that right now um, there, there is this interest in the West uh, amongst Westerners who are innovative in our approach, creative in our approach to practice. Uh, sometimes a, a little greater respect and appreciation for tradition is also called for and, and we can learn from, from from our Asian brothers and sisters but to appreciate a creative uh, interest in practice and the agility that comes with a creative involvement in practice I'm not convinced, actually, that uh, many of us make very good followers. I think just the uh, the shape and the nature of our egos doesn't make us very good followers. Um, you know, we don't have to get into praise and blame and about that, but I think that's my observation. That's how it is. We we're all one way or another turned out to be very strong individuals. And it makes for you know difficulty in committed relationship, that's for sure. But uh, there are also some advantages in that. That uh, you know, if you know, everybody follows everybody else, as a, you know, what happens if the leader starts to get things wrong? Well, you know, you follow the leader down the wrong wrong path. I think that, uh, as I was saying, that you know that that Buddhism has now been introduced to the West. Uh, a more creative and individual approach to it, I think, is not a bad thing. It's 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 quite refreshing, and it's doing Buddhism a lot of good in many ways. I'm sure we're all clever enough to see that it's probably doing it some harm as well. But 
to not dismiss individuality and creativity and to think that we, we should all just be do what, doing what we're told. I don't think that's what... I, I'm convinced that's not what the Buddha was encouraging at all. The last thing he said was, work out your own liberation with diligence. Work out your own liberation. You are responsible for your own liberation. We, each of us, have our own complexes and our own limitations and obstructions and we have to get creatively involved in how to manoeuvre through them. And I think the more complex and uh, and dis- disturbed and distracted we are, the more actually clever we have to be. Again, to quote Ajahn Chari, he was, he was you know, referring to some of his Western disciples and in a conversation that was around the subject of the difference between Western and Asian monks. And he said, yes, it's true that you, know, you Westerners have got lots of problems, but he said when you've dealt with these problems, when you've converted these problems into wisdom, he said, you'll be like living in a big mansion with lots of rooms, which you've got lots of potential. And he said, and, and some of these other monks here, they were probably sitting right next to him at the time, and he said, he said they're never going to have more than a grass hut. And, it, it, you know, it might be, you know, <laughs> that doesn't mean, that's not supposed to sound patronizing, but pointing to the fact that just because we have lots of limitations and, and, and obstructions doesn't mean to say that we're ultimately uh, inherently limited. It can be also an asset. So having an interest in, in agility and creativity and learning how to feel like this is my own path that I'm walking. To have that feeling. Now I'm aware that if that's heard the wrong way it can sound egotistical and you know, well I'm on my own path, I don't need a teacher. Well, that's certainly not what I'm saying. Definitely it's not that. The ego is not walking the path. But as a disciple, as I was saying the other night, as a disciple of life, we're willing to learn from everything. Whereas a follower, I think, tends to just accept things and believe and go along. So I don't see us as disciples of the Buddha as being followers. That, that word doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Whereas being a disciple does. Disciple is tra- a translation of a, of a Pali word, savaka, which is very interesting. It's a very interesting word. You know, you know, again, in the, ch- in the chanting, we do the savaka sankho, the, the community of disciples. And, and um, the Buddha's chief disciples or chief savakas were Sariputta and Moggallana. And you'll see there's an image in the reception room of, of Sariputta there off, uh, beside the shrine. And often you'll see, in, traditionally in shrines, you'll see these two disciples sitting beside the Buddha. And on the right-hand side was, was Sariputta, and on the left-hand side was Moggallana. Yes? I'm pretty sure it's that way around. And uh, the Buddha referred to Sariputta as equal in wisdom to himself and to uh, Venerable Moggallana as equal in uh, psychic ability to himself. And these were his chief sawakas, his chief disciples. Now the word sawaka the etymology of this word, uh, it comes from, it means somebody who listens. 
you know, a sawaka is somebody who listens, and this is where the word disciple came from because the teachings were given orally. And so a disciple would listen to the teacher. And it's interesting, you'll often see these images are sitting there with their ear cocked like this, listening, their heads on a little sort of angle. Not like the Buddha sitting totally centered and settled, facing the world in perfect balance. The sawaka is attending to the Dhamma, to the teaching. And uh, it's, it's also interestingly and rather curiously translated in some Mahayana texts referring to Venerable Sariputra and Venerable Moggallana, the chief disciples, as mere sound hearers. You know, they sort of didn't really get the whole story. They were just sound hearers. Um, it's a curious translation, perhaps etymologically quite accurate, but I don't think it's what the Buddha intended when he referred to them as his chief disciples. But I think helpful to reflect on the word that as a, as a, as a disciple of the Buddha, we're, we're listening, we're attending. Now, you know, it's not just writing down notes and repeating them. That's not what a disciple does. You know, if you, you, if you just copy your teacher, you, that's not a good disciple. A good disciple is one who attends and questions. Again, when, when Venerable Sariputta, after the Buddha asked him a question after the Buddha gave a discourse on, on the law of Kamma. And, um, as I recall it, the, the Buddha asked Sariputta, well, what did you think about that? You know, how, how did you feel about that teaching, Sariputta? And Sariputta said, well, I'll go away and think about it. And the Buddha said, very good answer, Sariputta, very good answer. Yeah. He, he wasn't wanting us to say, oh yes, that's absolutely true, that's right on. You know, Ananda, who was not so, well, wasn't enlightened at all until after the Buddha's death, Ananda, it seems, was more inclined to say things like that. And the Buddha gave a discourse, I, I think if it was on, I think it was on the Paticca Samupada, very complex teaching, and, and, um, the Buddha was, and, and, uh, Ananda, sorry, Ananda was, uh, praising this teaching and, and um, the Buddha was saying, well, don't be so quick to praise it. You know, this is very deep and very subtle. So having a, a questioning mind, an open mind to life, to reality, is the disposition of a disciple of the Buddha. And I think if we are that, well, we have to be creative. We have to have agility. We have to be willing to change and accord with circumstances. Not just, you know, apply a technique that we've learnt or be taught by somebody that we're totally impressed by. We may have met somebody who was radiant and profound in every aspect and, and we've heard they, them talk about their practice and, and so we just imitate their practice and keep hoping that it's going to work for us. It, it may not work for us. Yeah. So I would say it's essential that we have a, a creative relationship to our practice, both formal and daily life. At the same time, um, of course, respecting the, 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 the benefit of those who've been doing the training longer than us, the, the privilege of receiving teachings that have been tried and tested by those who, who know more than we do. But not just putting on to them full responsibility for telling us how to do it. You know, we have to figure out how to do it for ourselves. And this next question or comment, um, I feel, um, relates to this. And it says, referring to lust, the person says, When I feel lust, instead of imagining the person in their constituent body parts, that is, hair of the head, 
here the body's nails, teeth and skin, etc. I try to recognize them as a manifestation of the beautiful mystery of creation and as a person to be appreciated and respected. It makes lust seem uninteresting by comparison. The body parts practice takes one to impermanence, but so does this, as all created things die or cease. Do you have any comments? Again, I feel that a creative involvement with our practice is primary. And when we experience lust, with any degree of um, clarity, we perceive it as an irritation. Of course, if we're clouded and lost, then lust can be energizing and absolutely amazing and uh, wonderful, and the most, the most, the best thing that's going, if we're totally lost. But if we have any sense of perspective and clarity, then then lust feels like fire, and it's in a disturbance. And and to accept responsibility for this manifestation of our heart energy, I think we do have to be willing to look at it from many different angles. It is important that we know what the tradition says. It's very important we know what the tradition says and to have heard the teachings and to study the texts and, and to heard the encouragement of, of the, 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 the great monks and nuns and, and lay practitioners who've gone before us and have benefited from their practice. That, that is, that's really important. But that doesn't take away the responsibility for us to make our own inquiry into it. Find, well, what, do, what works for me? pain of lust or the pain of hatred, ill will, is a tangible body-mind experience. Our question is, how can we relate to this in a way whereby we're not just pushing it aside and we're not just getting caught up in it? How do I find my way through to an accurate and real relationship to this energy. In my own appreciation of the path of practice, I don't perceive lust and anger as bad energy or bad stuff. It's all good stuff as far as I'm concerned. The, the passions are all our heart energy. Certainly if the manifesting is lust and anger, then the manifesting in a very coarse and inhuman, actually, uh, manner... But that doesn't make the energy bad stuff. Uh, and sometimes people do project onto energy, onto the energy, the responsibility for the suffering, whereas actually it's the way the energy is being related to. It's I, it's the defilements or disturbance or disfigurations of, of egoity that pervert this energy, this good heart energy. This, you know, this energy itself is just energy but when it's being grasped in a contracted, selfish, distorted way, then it's experienced as suffering. And we have such deluded perceptions, if I hurt this person, I will be happy. Or if I gratify this lustful desire, then I, I will realize fulfillment. These deluded, distorted perceptions arise because of a false relationship to the energy, not because of the energy itself. 
in my view, in my way of relating to practice. So I think, again, yeah, we have to be creative and agile in how we approach these things. If one has a, um, a very lustful, very positive, um, glossy, um, loving relationship with life and sees things and everything as beautiful, amazing and wonderful and, and dealing with lust, then it's probably the case that that you're going to have trouble having a, reaching equanimity by trying to focus on on somebody as as a beautiful manifestation of the mystery of existence. Um, there is, it's, it's quite likely the case that you know as you try to focus on these beautiful aspects of the, this, this object of lust in your mind, that you'll just go down another path altogether. But that's for you to find out. Be careful as you go. Um, and, 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 and as I was saying, do prepare yourself. I think we should all prepare ourselves before we get too creative with becoming acquainted with the tradition. And so having tried these contemplations on the, on the body and its constituent parts, the 32 parts of the body, here the head, here are the body's nails, teeth and skin, and we went through them the other night. Having developed this, it could well be that somebody might you know, come across another way of working with lust. And the evidence, of course, is, is whether it works. Does the heart become cooled? Do we arrive at a sense of coolness through our contemplation, or does it stir us up more? These developing in the mind images of a, a pile of hair, a saucer full of teeth, you know, a cup full of spittle, like you were saying the other night, a bucket full of blood, and, and so on, and then a saucer full of fingernails. You know, developing these images in our mind um, is part of the preparation. And I would encourage anybody committed to, um, seriously committed to formal meditation, uh, should spend some time working with these at some stage. Because when you really get caught up in some passion, lustful passion, sometimes just to, just to bring this image into the mind can help. And if we haven't prepared ourselves, well then we might get caught out. Just the same as with anger, ill will, resentment. If, if we haven't actually put some time into cultivating formally the practice of loving kindness, then if we get caught up and you know, we get seriously hurt in some situation, some relationship, and we get impassioned by unacknowledged rage, something that we've, we thought we didn't have a problem with anger, and then suddenly at the age of 40, kapow, this volcanic, volcanic eruption takes place, and I just thought I was a nice guy. And, you know, introduction to our midlife crisis, and we suddenly we realize we've got all this unlived through anger, and if it happens in the middle of a meditation retreat, for instance, and we haven't prepared ourselves with a conscious contemplation of loving kindness, well, we're at a disadvantage. So these contemplations that we have on you know, formally reflecting on my I abide in well-being, my all beings be well, my all beings be free from suffering, the cultivation of the four Brahma Viharas, the reflections on old age, sickness and death, the reflections on the 32 parts of the body, these formal reflections that we we learn to do together are part of our preparation and I feel if we are properly prepared well then when a more creative um, perspective on dealing with lust such as this one that's commented on here arises then we're well placed to 
feel our way into it. If we haven't prepared ourselves with the traditional skills, then actually, we're, as I said, we're at somewhat of a disadvantage. But what I'd like to encourage, in, in particularly in those two questions, is that the um, personal feeling of individual responsibility. No book is going to tell us how to do it. No teacher is going to tell us how to do it. I am the one that creates these obstructions in my experience of reality. And so if I'm a disciple of life, or maybe even a disciple of reality, or a disciple of truth is better. To say a disciple of life somehow excludes death, and that's not right, because we, we have to include death in this. For me to say a disciple of truth doesn't really work either because I was brought up in New Zealand and the truth there is the name of a, a newspaper that the equivalent of the news of the world. <laughs> and, you know, it just doesn't work for me, a disciple of truth. You know, it's, it's very unfortunate. <laughs> Can you imagine me, a disciple of the sun? <laughs> there are some, but they're not on retreat here right now, I don't expect. <laughs> However, disciple of, maybe disciple of reality, whatever word works for us, to feel for that word, I think. Say, I'm a Buddhist. Well, what does a Buddhist mean? A Buddhist is a disciple of the Buddha, or a disciple of Dhamma. All of that's a bit foreign. What does it really mean? Yes, as years go by, that does take on meaning for us, feeling for us, but what does it really mean in terms of our experience? Does it, does it actually connect with a bodily feeling of individual responsibility for dealing with the obstructions that I experience in my life. So the, the last two questions are both to do with intention. The first one is um, a reflection and a question. And it reads like this, Me seeing you, or you seeing me, is the universe seeing itself? Me being kind or unkind to me or to you, or you being kind or unkind to me or to you, is the universe being kind or unkind to itself? This me and you are precisely points of view through which the universe knows itself as it follows its natural flow. In all of this, what is the nature and significance of intention? And the other one, in the context of inheriting the results of action upon intention, or could we say, in the context of inheriting the results of intentional action, would you say something about conscious versus unconscious intention? and retrospectively uncovering unconscious intent. The first thing that I think is good to say is that the Buddha in talking about 
reaching that point of individual responsibility for our relationship with life and death, our relationship with reality. Mm. We need to understand the law of karma. That karma is it, really. That in contemplating and understanding and working consciously with a an appreciation of the law of karma is essential if we want to reach that point of individual responsibility. And by individual responsibility, I'm not just talking about whether people approve of what we do in life. I'm talking about actually feeling the energy and the interest to deal with our suffering, you know, recognizing that if pain arises, you know, resentment arises, the pain of loneliness arises, a feeling of rejection arises, to actually feel interested in really allowing it, really accepting it, rather than just blaming, which is the, um, the, uh, the habit. So he said it's necessary, if we want to reach this point of individual responsibility, to really work with and understand and appreciate the law of karma. And karma, in defining karma, he says karma is intention. And karma is it, really. So mindfulness of intention is absolutely at the core of, of our practice. And starting our retreat a week ago, taking the precepts together in a symbolic way of giving value to sila, which is the foundation of practice. I think I, I possibly mentioned on that night that well, certainly it's worth recalling how when we look at, we see Buddha images, they're always seated on a, on a stylized lotus. And the lotus is the symbol for, for uh, sila, or moral impeccability, impeccability of conduct of body and speech. The, the lotus being something beautiful that grows up out of something rotten. You know, those of you who have been to Asia and you've seen lotuses grow up out of filthy, muddy fields, you know, a dirty old ditch, and you can see these beautiful absolutely gorgeous lotus flowers grow up and open up and just be absolutely untouched by the swamp that it's grown up out of. And so it is in the understanding of, of moral impeccability that that even though we may live in an environment or in a world where th- there's compromise going on all around, that actually when the heart is imbued with, with the virtue of, of uh, impeccability, of intention, then there is a beauty there. And this, the Buddha said, is the foundation of all practice, which is why we see the the Buddha, the symbol of enlightenment, seated on the lotus. And so mindfulness of intention uh, is uh, the result of precept training. When we we say, I undertake the training to refrain from, from intentionally killing living creatures, I undertake the train to refrain from taking that which is not given. And so on these five moral precepts, it's always intentionally, you know, killing. Like, you know, if you're sweeping, sweeping the leaves out there in the sand and, and uh, you accidentally um, squash a bug, uh, that's not breaking our precepts. Or just this evening when I... I uh, I put my slippers on and I couldn't get my foot in and there was a toad in there. (laughs) 
That's never happened before. And I thought, is this a sign? <laughs> There's this great big, ugly, warty black toad just sitting there comfortably in my slipper. And, and uh, I, I hurt him a little bit. Actually, I didn't kill him. But um, if I'd been a little bit more of a hurry to come to Puja, he'd have been history by now. Um, but actually, he, he kind of hopped away with a sort of sad look on his face. <laughs> but actually, fortunately, I didn't kill him. But even if I had killed him, um, actually, I did the other day. I killed a little weenie frog as I was um, fixing the pump in the pond there and lifting the tray off. And um, there's this uh, sad little dead frog on the side there. He wasn't quite dead, actually, at that point. It was really rather unpleasant to look at. And um, In terms of personal experience, I can tell you that when I started practice, if something like that happened, I would have had a panic attack. I thought, oh, I've broken my precept. My purity is destroyed. And it was because I didn't understand where purity lay or what the precepts were about. You know, the precepts are pointing to intentional action. That when we're really in that place of being able to see, read, feel, be one with our intention, then it's in the same place that wisdom and compassion can operate. That the choices we make the wise choices, the compassionate choices, are made when we occupy that place where we can read, feel, see our intention. How do we get to that place of being able to read, see, feel our intention? We accept such conventional structures. I undertake the train to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the train to refrain from uh, false speech. If we say that, I undertake the train to refrain from false speech then you know you can be rabbiting away and saying something quick and and then you suddenly think oh i just lied uh, or did you intend to lie said, oh i don't know so well you're in a pickle aren't you yeah. you're in a pickle if we don't know if we don't know whether we intended to or not so that's the point this is what the, the why the buddha emphasized that to get in the position of being able not just you know, it's a good idea, but to be able to accept responsibility for our actions, we need to be in that place where we can read our intentions, where we can know. And part of this question here says that um, retrospectively uncovering unconscious intent, you know. Um, well, I would say that, you know, when we start to, as sometimes happens in a situation like this where we're really contained and intensity and deepening is taken as a result of our commitment to silence and group practice, we suddenly, you know, some of the clouds part and, and we, we do hear things and see things and recognize things within ourselves that we hadn't recognized before and it can even, it can be really frightening. You think, oh, I didn't realize that was my intention. And um, if you want to know what I think about that, I say, well, let it scare the hell out of you. I think that's actually that's the thing it can do. You know, really let it scare the scare the heck out of us, because fear is not always a bad thing. If we can learn to be afraid of wrongdoing, not in a compulsive, neurotic way, which is all tied up with guilt and such, you know, unfortunate disfigurements of mind, but in a very healthy way. Ajahn Chah used to say, well, you know, you want to cross the road, uh, you know, a motorway, and there's all these cars zooming backwards and forwards. He said, you should be afraid. Fear actually produces a sense of caution and alertness. 
He also pointed out, I think this was, this was just after he'd come back from America where he'd been teaching at IMS and uh, talking about you know, trying to teach Americans. And he said, there's no point in talking about morality to them, you know, or dana or you know, any of these things. You know, they're not interested. First, you've got to talk about wisdom and insight, and they're really interested in that. And you get them all inspired, and they're very easily inspired. He says they'll do anything. They'll practice, you know, sit there for weeks in silence and suffer intensely, not like the Thai people. You get them to sit silently for a week. And, uh, yeah. so these Americans and at IMS, they'll sit for weeks, months, in intense practice. So, but once they understand, once they've got the inspiration of, of the wisdom aspect of the teaching, well then he said it's like, he said, he was sitting in a chair at the time, I remember we talking about it, and he was slouched back in a chair and he said, you know, like this is where you're just basically indulging in life and you don't know what's going on and, and you think everything's just fine and, and you're cracking jokes and having a good time. He said, but when you start to know what's what, you know, you sit up straight and you look down and you see there's a great big poisonous centipede just about to bite your toe and then you're not cracking jokes anymore. Yeah. And so it is with when we start to really understand Reality, you know, a few insights, a little understanding of, of reality. It's like the metaphor of sitting up straight and you start to see what's what. You start to see cause and effect operating and fear does arise. And you my goodness, I used to do that. And there can be a, a very painful sense of shame arise, in, um, especially on retreats. And, and it can be not a small thing for many of us uh, when we think back at the way we treated our parents and previous relationships and business endeavors and things that we did that were less than impeccable in the context of a peaceful, tranquil heart and clear mind, a real sense of remorse can arise. And so as I was saying, well, you know, let it scare the hell out of us. Let it really register deeply that we are responsible for our actions and there are consequences for our intentional actions. If it's a non-intentional action, you know, if a frog gets squashed without intention, well, okay, maybe be more mindful next time, but it's not intentionally killing. Or even if you accidentally take something that belonged to somebody else and they accuse you of stealing, that's not stealing unless it's intending to take it when you know it's not yours. And same with false speech, the same with all the precepts. So yes, we need to work to be more mindful, but actually the point of karma, the point of real responsibility, the point of real consequence is where there's intention. So if we hold our precepts carefully, wisely, skillfully, then the aim is that they will take us back to an individual capacity for reading, feeling, seeing intention, being in that place where we can take responsibility for the choices that we make, the actions. We're not just on automatic pilot. And when it, just to say, just a couple more things on that point of things coming up that we realize were previously unconscious, um, sometimes we just have to endure things realize, well actually I got it wrong, even though I was unconscious, there was still intention there. It doesn't negate the karma. Mm. It may make it less if it was not conscious, but if there was intention there and, and uh, 
when there's intention, there will be a result and there will be individual responsibility. But when we see this and there's remorse arises, it's really important that, again, we prepare ourselves and ready ourselves for, for being able to just endure that. And this is part of accepting responsibility for our karma also. And say, well, okay, that was the karma of ignorance and unawareness and, and it was a mistake. But now we can make the wholesome karma, the good karma, of actually accepting it and say, I accept it. I accept full responsibility for what I did, whatever the consequences will be. And even though that might mean having to sit through some burning for a while, we sit there, non-judgmental, here and now awareness, receiving it. Not letting the mind spin out into thinking, well, I'm going to burn in hell, I'm going to be eons. And so that's a sign of having not prepared ourselves. And many of us have sadly suffered coming into this path without proper preparation. But to end on an encouragement for uh, an appreciation of the precepts in particular for bringing us to that point where not only do we have an idea that I should behave myself because somebody out there, some external authority is watching or will tell me off if I don't or any such thing. Yeah. The practice, there's another word, you know, we were chanting, we were saying before, you know, that we, the chanting is sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, opanayiko. These words all have very significant meaning. The, the sanditiko, and to be seen here and now, akaliko, means it's timeless. Dhamma has got nothing to do with, you know, it's not limited to time and place. Dhamma is, truth is always true. It doesn't go out of fashion or anything. Truth is always true. Sanditiko, akaliko, ehi pasiko. It invites inspection. The nature of Dhamma is it, it's really in, drawing us into inquiry. When you start to approach reality, it's inviting. Opanayiko, the word I was just going to comment on, opanayiko has the meaning of leading us to the source, leading us inwards to the the inner reality. This is, as I understand it, contrasted to the the conventional, habitual, worldly disposition um, that we're all familiar with. Of our energy always going out, you know, going out through our eyes, through our nose, through our tongue, through our ears, and through the outflowing of our attention into the worldly stimulus. The nature of dhamma and uh, our cultivation of mindfulness of intention is always leading us inwards, leading us back to the source. And this is the nature of Dhamma. And then Pachatang Vidita Bhavanyuhi, to be seen individually by the wise. This is work that each of us has to do. And not that each of us has to do, but that each of us can do. This is, from the Buddhist perspective, is something that human beings can do, which is why he gave his teaching. So thank you very much for your attention.